First Corinthians chapter 14, beginning at verse 1. Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may receive edifying. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what shall I profit you, unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or the harp? For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Therefore, let no one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I shall pray with the spirit, and I shall pray with the mind also. I shall sing with the spirit, and I shall sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the Amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying? For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other man is not edified. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking Yet in evil be uh, babes, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people. And even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then tongues are for a sign not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. If therefore the whole church should assemble together, all speaking tongues, and ungifted men of unbelievers enter, they... <coughs> will not say that you are mad, but if all prophesy, an unbeliever, an ungifted man hears, he is convicted by all, he is called to God to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. As we have come to chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, we have seen in chapter 14 that it deals with prophecy, tongue speaking, and we're going to see in how those are to operate in public worship, at least in the apostolic era. We have seen already in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians that prophecy and tongues were partial inspirations or revelations of God, that is, of his mysteries, partial revelations of of his mysteries. During the apostolic era, they were necessary until the perfect comes. Again, 1 Corinthians 13, 9 and 10 tells us that prophecy and tongues are partial until the perfect comes, and then when that perfect comes, the other will cease. So whatever... The perfect is, we've already discussed that, it is the opposite of what the partial is. But we've already seen that the partial is revelation from God of his mysteries. Therefore, this is why the perfect is the completed canon of Scripture. 
We have also seen that the purpose of the gifts of the Spirit were given for the edification of the body. It's not for personal edification. And if the body is going to be edified, it has to understand what is being said. And that's the whole point about tongues. Tongues does not edify the congregation unless those tongues are interpreted. And that's why Paul says in our text that I'd rather speak, he says, five words with my mind and that I may instruct others than 10,000 words at a tongue. People have to understand, have to comprehend what's being said in order to be edified. And we have seen that in this text, in chapter 14, that tongues without an interpreter is inferior to prophecy. And But when you have an interpreter, then tongues serves basically the same purpose as prophecy, because people can now understand what is being said. We have seen that this is important. As I brought out last week, you are quite aware of the fact that there are many uh, particular views on this and uh, when are the tongues are going to cease and when are the prophecies going to cease some believe they continue on until uh, the second coming of Christ that's how some have interpreted the perfect but we're trying to put it all together to see what is the most faithful rendering of the scriptures and it does have uh, ramifications to us we need to understand uh, what, what was the purpose of tongues? Today, we're going to take a look at the meaning and the purpose of tongue speaking. Now, we've already seen in 1 Corinthians 13 that it said that there's coming a time that when tongues will cease, prophecy will be done away, and if there is knowledge that is a word of knowledge, it will be done away. When you build a building, a large building, oftentimes you've seen it yourself. You've seen scaffolding around the building. It's there for the formation and the building of that edifice. Is it always there? Does it always remain? It doesn't always remain. When it serves its purpose, you take it down because the building is complete. You're familiar with uh, the space program in the old days uh, when they had <clears throat> to get a person into outer space, you had the capsule, which was on the part of the booster, and most of the rocket serves only one purpose, get that top where the astronauts are into space. And at some point, as it gets into orbit, the booster falls away. Now, in modern-day NASA program, they have the space shuttle. It may be pretty large, and it's attached to the booster, but the shuttle needs to have the booster get it into orbit. And when it gets into uh, a, a certain position, the booster falls away. It serves its purpose. Now, I give that analogy to you to demonstrate this was the purpose of tongues. They serve a purpose. We've seen Already Ephesians 2 says that the ministry of the apostles and prophets were, according to Ephesians, to lay the foundation upon which the church can build its edifice. And that with the apostles and prophets, what they spoke, they spoke the revelation of God, the inspired scripture. And there were signs and miracles that accompanied them so that to bear testimony to what they spoke was the revelation of God. Now, when we look at uh, the issue of tongue speaking, as you might be aware, some say that there are two types of tongues, known languages and then a heavenly language, and the uh, known as some kind of gibberish, some kind of thing that only the person that's speaking the tongues knows. And some have said, well, Acts 2 speaks about this known language of tongues, but 1 Corinthians 14, according to some, speaks about this heavenly language. Well, the point here is, is that what the Scripture says? 
and we're going to see, I trust after today, that is there is not two types of tongues, but even 1 Corinthians 14 will tell us that the tongues are particular languages. If you were to outline the message today, it would have uh, several major points. First of all, tongues entailed inspired revelation. Tongues, secondly, were foreign languages. They were not an unintelligible uh, language or gibberish. Tongues were then intended for public edification, not private use. And then finally, tongues were a sign that would be a curse to unbelievers and a a blessing to believers. Now, let's take a look at how the scripture presents this case. First of all, tongues were inspired revelation from God. I mentioned a key passage last week that we need to take a look at. So, again, turn to Ephesians chapter 3. And let's look at verses 4 through 11. Ephesians 3, verses 4 through 11. And by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sorts of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things, in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what we see here, Paul says, as a minister of the gospel, he says the apostles and the prophets were given a task. They were stewards of the mysteries of God. And he tells us what that mystery is. The mystery is the fact that God was going to minister to the Gentiles in a glorious way. Past generations did not have that understanding, did not have that revealed to them. But through the apostles and prophets, he says, God was always intending to work with the Gentiles. Always. And that the blessings would come to them. And the mystery, hidden for the ages, is that truth. He says, he defines what that mystery is. Namely, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body. The dividing wall is broken down between Jew and Gentile. And we're going to see that has great ramifications for the last point in terms of uh, tongues being assigned to unbelievers and the believers. So, <clears throat> a mystery is a biblical truth that has been hidden from some and revealed to others through the power of the Spirit, and particularly the apostles and prophets were the medium of God's revelation revealing that glorious gospel that Jesus is the Savior of sinners, wherever they are. We took a look also at another companion passage that's very similar to Ephesians that we looked at last week, but I want to mention again, and that is Romans chapter 16. Turn to Romans 16 and look at verses 25 to 26. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel in the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but is now manifested by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God 
has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith. So basically what we can say, in the use of tongues, it was a public proclamation of the gospel in a known language, revealing the mysteries of God long hidden in generations past. The tongue speaker had no idea what a language that they were necessarily speaking. They had never learned that language, and that's why it was miraculous. It was the inability to convey in a real language that which they had never learned. That was the miraculous nature of it. I want to break, uh, turn back with me to 1 Corinthians 14. Because we need to take a look, I want to mention to you verse 6 here so that we understand something about verse 6. It says, But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what shall I profit you? Unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching. Now, what we need to understand about this passage is that he's not making Prophecy, something separate from revelation. That's not the point here. What he's emphasizing here is that the prophets had to be inspired of God and they conveyed the inspired word of God. And if what they said did not come to pass, what does the scripture say? They were to be put to death. Prophets don't, a true prophet does not make a mistake. Because they are the medium of God. Now, the reason they can't make a mistake is God doesn't make mistakes, right? And if they are the spokesman for God, what they say has to come to pass. Or they are a false prophet. This word revelation, by the way, in this, in this verse here, um, it's the word apocalypsis, apocalypse. Revelation, it has multiple uses in the scriptures. It can mean simply uh, the way it's used to refer to the appearing, the apocalypse of the Lord Jesus at the end of the world. Uh, it's used that way in, in some verses. Uh, it can mean just a illumination of scripture uh, here. But what we should see here, and what I want to convey, is that Revelation and prophecy aren't separate. We need to, to see that essentially a, a prophecy is a subset of revelation. In other words, prophecy is the servant of revelation. A prophet uh, takes what God has revealed and then passes it on to others. So what we need to understand, first of all, is that prophecy tongues, and the like, were revelatory. They were inspired scripture. It wasn't just some illumination of the word of God. It was inspired scripture. And we're going to see that this is brought out in reference to uh, tongue speaking particularly. The second major point that we want to bring out on the meaning and the purpose of tongues is that tongues were a foreign language. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. And let's look at the account on the day of Pentecost, what actually happened. Uh, Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 4 through verse 11. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were bewildered because they were each one hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and marveled, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Where are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes, Lamanites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, 
and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Now, in this passage, we see that those who are gathered heard the mighty deeds of God. Now, that's what they heard, the mighty deeds of God. They were hearing witness-bearing to the gospel. And these people in the known Roman world, wherever they were, were hearing about these mighty deeds of God in their own language. And that's what was amazing to them. And God had poured out upon the disciples who had been gathered there, according to Jesus, and he poured out his spirit and gave them utterance as he desired. Now, we do not know whether God divided up uh, among the disciples as if, you're going to get this language, you're going to get this one, and you're going to get that one. We don't know. He may have given some the ability to speak multiple languages. We're not told. But the point here is, it was a known language, and the miracle was not in the hearing. The miracle was in the speaking. Because they were... There was nothing miraculous about their hearing. These people had a language base, and they had a a dialect, of course, that they spoke. And what was miraculous was they heard people speak in their dialect who normally would not know their dialect. That was the miracle. Now, one may ask the question, are there two types of tongues? We're going to see that... No, they're not. And first of all, Acts 2, 4 that we just looked at is linked up to our passage later on in 1 Corinthians 14, 21. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 14, 21, and you'll see. Now, Paul is talking about the importance. He's talking about the nature of tongues in chapter 14. Now, in verse 21, He quotes a significant Old Testament passage. What he quotes is Isaiah 28, 11. Now, why would Paul quote Isaiah 28, 11 unless he intends to link tongue speaking in the Corinthian church to what was prophesied to take place? In verse 21, it says, In the law it is written, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to the people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Now, to understand then why would Paul then mention Isaiah 28.11, let's turn to Isaiah 28.11 and see its bearing here. Isaiah 28. Indeed, he will speak to this people through stammering lips in a foreign tongue. He who said to them, here is rest, give rest to the weary. And you have to know the the context here. The context is a prediction of God bringing judgment to unfaithful Israel. And because of their unfaithfulness, God says, I'm going to speak to these people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. Now, Paul is quoting this passage in 1 Corinthians 14. And why would Paul want to quote that passage unless it has a bearing on the nature of tongues in 1 Corinthians? He's relating the two. And what was uh, what kind of tongues were in Isaiah 28? A foreign language. Basically, he's talking about because of Israel's unfaithfulness, he's going to bring the Babylonians upon them who spoke in strange tongues to the Jews. Now, in this regard, there's another passage 
that's very similar to the one in Isaiah 28 that is pertinent for us to understand. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 28 and look at verses 49 and 50. Now, before we read the passage, in Deuteronomy 28, you have the blessings and the cursings. One, they were stood on two different mountains, and one shouted out the blessings, and one shouted out the curses. If you keep the covenant, you'll be blessed. If you break the covenant, you'll be cursed. And this is in the section on God's curses of those who break the covenant. He says in verse 48, or verses 49 and 50, he says, The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you shall not understand, a nation of fierce countenance, who shall have no respect for the old, nor show favor to the young. The whole point here is to demonstrate that this other tongue was an actual foreign language. And it was a a foreign language that the Jews did not understand. Now, another passage that we need to take a look at to demonstrate that the tongues were actual foreign languages Turn with me to Isaiah 33, look at verse 19. You will no longer see a fierce people, a people of unintelligible speech, which no one comprehends, or a stammering tongue, which no one understands. Now, in this passage, in Isaiah, just to summarize, in Isaiah 33, you have God's judgment, but then you have a promise of God's blessing. And when God goes to bless, he's no longer going to give a language that you don't understand, but he'll give you a language that you do understand. And we're going to see that that importance when we take a look at tongues as a covenant sign of cursing and blessing. So what we see here in our text, for example, in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 7 through 11, Paul is not talking about a heavenly gift language. He's talking about a known language. And verse 21, as we've already said, bears that out. That's why he spoke Isaiah 28. And therefore, this tongue speaking, as it was being manifested, was being manifested in a way, or supposed to be, that people could understand what was being said. That's why you needed an interpreter. So that the body is edified. Again, under the major point that Paul wants to bring out to the Corinthians here is, there was always a tendency among the Corinthians to um, elevate themselves, some people to exalt themselves above others. We've already seen that all the way through 1 Corinthians 14. Some people thought, because I have this gift, I'm more important than you. And he's talking about, and with reference to tongues, sometimes these people who had the ability of tongues, they had that ability to speak in tongues, may have elevated themselves above others. And Paul wants them to understand for sure, tongues are of no value in the church unless somebody understands what's being said. I'd rather speak five words that people can understand, he says, with my mind, a prophecy than 10,000 tongues. Somebody needs to interpret so that people can be edified. It's not for uh, personal edification. It's not to elevate or raise your ego. The purpose of the tongues and the interpretation is so that the mystery of the gospel could be proclaimed. And as we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 14, it was not uncommon for unbelievers to be present in a church service. And Paul is saying, now what's going to happen if someone comes in, an unbeliever, and everybody's speaking in tongues, and there's no interpreter? He says, what did he say? They're going to think you're mad. And so we see here that tongues were a foreign language. It was intended to be for the edification of the people that they may understand the gospel. Now, tongues had a prophetic, it was a prophetic ministry, we need to emphasize, a prophetic ministry. How do we know that? Well, turn with me to Acts chapter 2 
and we'll see how it was a prophetic ministry. Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. We're going to read verse 14 to verse 21. Now, again, the context here is, this is the day of Pentecost. The disciples have gathered in obedience to Jesus. The Holy Spirit's fallen on them. They've spoken in tongues. These people were hearing in their own dialect the mighty deeds of God. Now, Peter is about now to start preaching. And it's very important what he preaches and what Old Testament passage he makes reference to. So, in verse 14, we begin reading. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit upon all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above, and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. To explain the tongue speaking that was happening in Pe- at Pentecost, Peter says, I'm going to tell you how to understand it. Understand what Joel was prophesying. Today, at the day of Pentecost, he says, Joel's prophecy has been fulfilled. It has now happened, and you are witnesses of it. Now, in this, Peter quoting from Joel, he's quoting from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and following, for several reasons. For them to understand that it was being fulfilled right now. It's not being relegated to some future time at the end of the world. See, when we interpret the scriptures, we need to believe the inspired writers. When inspired Peter says, Joel's prophecy was fulfilled today at the day of Pentecost, believe Peter. He's inspired. Believe Peter. In all of this imagery, of the, the, the sun, the moon, the stars being darkened, they're figurative language. It's not like the stars actually became dark. We'll take a look at a couple passages here that demonstrate, as I've mentioned before, it is figurative language of great momentous events in history. Now, this is Peter's version He says Joel's prophecy, and he quotes some from Joel's prophecy. I want us to turn to Joel's prophecy itself. Turn, keep your hand there in Acts 2, but turn over to Joel chapter 2, and look at verses 28 to verse 32. And it shall come about after this, this, that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, Your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions, and even on the male and female servants I will pour out my my spirit in those days. And I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. Sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Now notice how close Peter is quoting there in Joel. And he says what happened at the day of Pentecost is Joel's fulfillment. 
There are several things about this. He says sons and daughters and old men, they're going to prophesy. And that's exactly what was happening. Men and women were, had the Spirit poured out. I may already anticipate one of your uh, questions, and we'll deal with it later at the end. you telling me that there were women who were prophesying? Yes. Does that mean that women are to prophesy in the church? And the answer to that is going to say, no, there is a difference where you prophesy. But Joel's prophecy is being fulfilled. Because these men and women were speaking in tongues, and they were, were bearing witness of what, does Peter say, the great mighty acts of God. Now, in this reference to the great and mighty acts of God, it has reference to the day of the Lord. And this day of the Lord is very significant. I probably ought to just reserve a comment to that and mention this other first, because I do want to mention about the significance of the day of the Lord. But I want to deal, first of all, before I discuss that, this, this, the idea of this imagery. Sun, moon, stars being darkened. And some have said, well, we need to be literalists. We need to literally believe that's true. Well, no, I need to literally believe how the Bible is intended to be understood. Now, Peter says this imagery has happened on the day. But what is this imagery seeking to convey? Well, I want us to take a look at three passages quickly. Turn to Isaiah chapter 13.10. We're dealing with this imagery, sun, moon, stars being darkened. Turn to Isaiah chapter 13, verse 10. Now this chapter 13 of Isaiah is a prophecy about Babylon. That's what all of chapter 13 is about. Babylon. Verse 10. And God used Babylon to destroy Israel. Because of their unfaithfulness. Now, what is God going to do to Babylon? Well, verse 10. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. That is figurative language that demonstrates judgment. That's what it's intended to do. It's poetic language to indicate a monumental event. In this case, a monumental event in terms of judgment. Turn with me to Ezekiel 32. Look at Ezekiel 32, verse 2, and then verses 7 and 8. Now, this is a prophecy against Egypt in Ezekiel 32. Verse 2. Son of man, take up a lamentation over Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him, So this is what God wants Ezekiel to say to Pharaoh. Take a look at verse 7 and 8. In this judgment upon Egypt, he says, And when I extinguish you, I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light. And the shining lights in the heavens, I will darken over you and will set darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. Now, we do know there was a darkness that did come over the land, but he's talking about this imagery of judgment coming upon Egypt. And then turn with me to Isaiah chapter 60, and let's start at verse 15 through verse 22. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated, with no one passing through, I will make you an everlasting pride. A joy from generation to generation. You will also suck the milk of nations and will suck the breast of kings. Then you will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I will make peace your administrators and righteousness your overseers. Violence will not be heard again in your land nor devastation or destruction within your borders, but you will call but you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. 
No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord for an everlasting light, and your God for your glory. Your sun will set no more, neither will you mourn. Your moon wane, for you will have the Lord for an everlasting light, and the days of your mourning will be finished. Then all your people will be righteous. They will possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. The smallest one will become a clan, and the least one a mighty nation. I, the Lord, will hasten in its time. You know what Isaiah 60 is all about? The glorified church of the Lord Jesus. The glorified Zion. The coming time when the Lord will bless His people. Now, in Acts 2, when Peter was preaching, he said here that this day of the Lord, in verse 21, he says, And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, you have this pouring out of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. You have these people speaking in tongues of what Peter say, the mighty acts of God. Peter preaches to this crowd. He says, now, let me tell you, this mighty one that is going to do a great work among you. He says, it's none other than the Lord Jesus whom you crucified. In fact, the Bible, David, he says, prophesied that there would be one who would come sitting on his throne. And and he said, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, whom I'm now preaching to you, who is now ascended, who is now sitting at the right hand of the Father and dispensing gifts to men. And what happened on the day of Pentecost? What was the response of Peter's message? Three thousand people are converted. This is said to be the day of the Lord. And so what Acts 2, 17 through 20 marked was a monumental event in the history of the world. The judgment of national Israel occurs, and then the restoration of God's elect people that encompass the Gentile world, not just the Jews. It ushered in, the day of Pentecost ushered in the Messianic age. And that ushering in of the Messianic age was the speaking in tongues of the great mysteries of God. That mystery long before hidden that God was going to show mercy to the Gentiles. And it was going to be a blessing to the world. Now, this brings us to the the last major point of the message, and that is, what was the purpose of the tongues? It was a covenantal sign of curse and a covenantal sign of blessing. Again, remember, in Isaiah 28, 11, we have, and in Deuteronomy 28, 49, that we've already taken a look at, God says, With reference to those who are unfaithful, what is God going to do to those who are unfaithful? I'm going to bring a people against you whose language you don't understand. That's part of the judgment. A language you don't understand. They didn't understand the Babylonians. and Some didn't understand the Romans when they came in 70 A.D. And so, this tongues, basically, the speaking in tongues, served a dual purpose. Think of it that way. A dual purpose. Judgment upon unbelievers, and then a blessing. Now, this judgment on unbelievers would be national Israel for the most part. And it would be upon a blessing upon believers, the Gentile world. That is the purpose of the tongues. Now, we're already seeing. Now, I want you to, let's turn back to Isaiah 28 and look at not only just verse 11 
all, but all the way through verse 16, and you'll see this dual aspect. So let's turn to Deuteronomy 28. I mean, not Deuteronomy, Isaiah 28. Indeed, he will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. He who said to them, here is rest, give rest to the weary. And here is repose, but they would not listen. So the word of the Lord to them will be order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there, that they may go and stumble backward, be broken, snared, and taken captive. Therefore, hear the words of the word of the Lord, O scoffers, who rule this people who are in Jerusalem, because you have said we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol we have made a pact. The overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by, for we have made falsehood our refuge and we have concealed ourselves with deception. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm laying laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. Now, God said to Israel, national Israel, because you were unfaithful, I'm going to send against you a people whose language you do not know. But then also he says, because you would not listen to me, he says, your main crime is that I laid a cornerstone in your midst and you stumbled over it. And when you stumbled over it, you will be devastated by stumbling over this cornerstone. What Pentecost represents is the removal of the kingdom from national Israel just as Christ predicted it would happen. And simultaneously, in removing the kingdom from Israel, the blessing would be poured out upon the Gentile world. It would be the ushering in of this great messianic age. Now, Jesus prophesied that it would happen. Turn with me to Matthew 21. And look at verses 42 through 44. Matthew 21, 42 through 44. Now this is, this is the parable of the landowner. And one has gone off into a far country. And he's, he has a vine. He has vine growers. And some of these in the vine growers have proved to be unfaithful. And Jesus is referring to a particular group. And they understood this parable. In fact, this is one parable where he allows them to understand, and they understand, and they didn't like it because they understood, as verse 45 says, they understood that he was speaking against them. Now, what did he say, verses 42 to 44? Jesus said to them, did you never read in the scriptures? Guess what he's going to quote. He's going to quote here, for one, he's going to quote Psalm 118, which is very similar to our text in Isaiah. He says, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given to a nation producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. And in this, it says in verse 45, the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables. They understood that he was speaking about them. And when they sought to seize him, they feared the multitude because they held him to be a prophet. Jesus says the day was coming in fulfillment of what Isaiah and what the Psalms have said. God is going to rip the kingdom away from you because you did not recognize the day of your visitation. Now, those are words that Jesus gave. For example... 
Luke 19.44, which Luke is giving in this section a, a teaching very similar to Matthew 24. And here's what Jesus said, recorded by Luke in Luke 19.44. He said, Jesus says, looking at the temple, he says, Not one stone will be left standing in the temple. Enemies will throw up banks and surround you because you did not recognize the day of your visitation. Where did they fail? Well, first of all, it is no minor thing that Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey in fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy that the Son of God, that the Son of David would come riding on a donkey into Jerusalem. Now, some of the people say, Hosanna to the Son of David, a reference to the Messiah. The Messiah had come to Jerusalem, the holy city. The one to whom all the scriptures point to. He has arrived. He has made his visit. But Jerusalem would reject him. And there recorded in Matthew 23, we see Jesus weeping. It says he actually wept over Jerusalem and said, I would have wanted to gather you under me as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings but you would not come. You were unwilling to come. Therefore, he says, not one stone will be left upon another. You did not recognize, Luke says, the day of your visitation. And I will bring upon you, just like in Babylon did in Jerusalem years earlier, I'll bring upon you a people whose language you don't understand. But now it's going to be lights out for good for national Israel. In this regard, Israel, what was their great crime? They stumbled over the cornerstone, just like Isaiah 28 prophesied. In 1 Corinthians 14.22, if you want to turn back to that passage, In 1 Corinthians 14.22, Paul said, Tongues are a sign not to those who believe, but to unbelievers as a covenantal curse. Now, with reference, in one sense, the tongue speaking represented the presence of God among the people that either brought a blessing or a curse, depending upon how you related to Jesus. Depending on how you related to Jesus. Now, we've already seen when Paul and Barnabas were preaching throughout Asia Minor, we were told that they, their custom was to go into the synagogue first, because salvation is of the Jews. And it says the promise is to be the Jews first and to the Gentiles but when they were preaching Jesus and they were reasoning with the Jews in the synagogue, they were met with great resistance. And Paul and Barnabas says, we're finished with you. Because you've rejected, we now go to turn our attention to the Gentiles. And then the Gentiles will hear the same message, and they won't stumble over the, stumbles, the cornerstone. They'll believe in the cornerstone, which is Jesus. And it will be a blessing to them. Now, while tongues, for the most part, is a covenantal sign of cursing to unbelievers, it is also a blessing to those who hear and believe. And just like what Peter said on his sermon on the day of Pentecost, in verses 20 and 21, again, he says, this day of the Lord. See, the Pentecost was the day of the Lord in a real sense, historically. And that day of the Lord, turn with me again, I want you to see this. Turn to to Acts 2, because it's really important. Again, look at verse 21. Acts 2, 21. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
in verse 20, he had indicated before the great, he says, the sun shall be turned into darkness, moon into blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. It was a glorious day of the Lord when 3,000 people heard the preaching of Peter and embraced Jesus as their Lord and Savior. The great day of the Lord of Joel's prophecy has come to pass. Now, mind you, the term the day of the Lord has multiple uses in Scripture. What I want, what I want you to understand here, don't think that the term the day of the Lord only, only references the end of the world. Because it doesn't. Because Peter says the day of the Lord came at the day of Pentecost. Now, <clears throat> So you do have a day of the Lord on the day of Pentecost, and there's going to be a day of the Lord at the end of the world. Let's take a look at that one very quickly. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, and look at verses 7 through 10. Actually, we need to back up to verse 3. Because he's talking about those who are scoffing about the second coming of Jesus. So we need to see in this whole picture. So look at Second Peter 3, beginning at verse 3. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was in the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But the present heavens and earth, by his word, are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. That with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Now that is... The final day of the Lord. Now, on that final day of the Lord, which, by the way, comes at the same time as the second coming, this day of the Lord is the great day of judgment, because that's what he's talking about here. The second coming, the great judgment, and it's called the day of the Lord. Now, what happens on this, this great day of the Lord when Jesus comes? Well, Jesus tells us in Matthew 25, does he not? When he comes on that day at the end of the world, on his second coming, what is he going to do? Separate the sheep from the goats. The goats on his left, sheep on his right. And his coming, and, and it's going to be a distinction between on that great and glorious day, that day of judgment, what's going to happen? Some are going to be eternally cursed, and some are going to be eternally blessed. Interesting, isn't it? That's the final day of the Lord. But before that great glorious day of the Lord, Peter says what happened on Pentecost is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy of the day of the Lord. And guess what? It has a dual aspect then. Those who refuse to believe in Jesus will perish, but there are those who chose to believe in Jesus and were blessed. And so tongues, you see, served a dual purpose. To those who are unbelievers, it's a sign of cursing upon them. They don't understand he says, I will, I will speak to you in tongues, and yet in a language you don't understand. And God leaves some in darkness. But others, he says, it will be a day of great blessing. 
to others, especially the Gentiles. Because God, that, that mystery of long ago is going to be come to pass. So what happened was this. In the speaking of tongues, it was, as we bring all of this together, the speaking in tongues was revelatory. It was inspired scripture. And it was intended to proclaim the gospel in a language that people could understand and therefore repent of their sins and believe. But there are some who refuse to believe. Jesus says, I would have wanted to gather you like another hen, but you wouldn't come. You stumbled over the cornerstone. And it's a terrible uh, destruction that will come upon you for refusing to believe in me. And tongues served that purpose. It served that purpose, but keep in mind, tongues was a piecemeal revelation. It was a piecemeal. It was partial until the perfect comes, which is the Word of God. We have now the Gospel revealed to us. We have it now. I don't need to have someone speaking in a foreign tongue of the mystery of the Gospel. I can read it for myself. It has now come. It was important in the building up of the uh, the church and its foundations, but you got to understand that First Corinthians fourteen was still in the apostolic period. It was still during that period, and we're going to see that prophecy. He says now, with as significance as significant as tongues were, without interpreter, it doesn't mean anything. The people have to be edified. Prophecy is greater than tongues. But if you got someone who will interpret it, then it will serve like as prophecy. Of what? Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Savior of sinners. Repent and come to Jesus. The mystery has now been revealed. That was its purpose and its meaning for tongues. Let us pray.